Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We will cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Julie Gunderson, at Julie underscore Gund on Twitter. Today, we're going to be talking about monitoring with Eric Ketchum. Eric is from San Francisco and has a background working with various startups and gaming companies and is now in uh, financial services. Eric, you want to take a moment? Hey, thanks for having me, Julie. Um, Yeah, so as you mentioned, I've been in and around startups in San Francisco for the last 15 years or so. Currently, I'm an engineering manager of a software development team, uh, as I have been for several years now. We deal with monitoring quite a bit um, on the application side of things. Um, So hopefully I can have some input here and and, uh, participate in a fevered discussion around application monitoring and instrumentation. Well, thank you, Eric. To get us started... Uh, what's your high-level strategy for monitoring for maybe anybody that's new for optimizing? Sure. Yeah. Um, so from a software development perspective, uh, the main concerns we typically have are latency uh, for requests. So you might think about um, how long it takes to load a web page and um, everything that goes into that is basically the background of what we're instrumenting and kind of monitoring. So a lot of times you break a request to a website down into a few different categories. Uh, one might be like the latency of 50% of your traffic or 98% of your traffic or 99. A lot of times we refer to those things as like P50, P98, P99. So it's basically saying that 50% of your traffic get this um, response time uh, or better. Uh, 98% of your traffic gets that response time or 99. And a lot of times you end up when you're dealing with vendors and people who are consuming your services, you have what's considered an SLA. I think most people understand that concept is basically you're saying your service level agreement for these response times is such that your website's very responsive. Um, you know, an API call to your web service might be, uh, you know, this amount of speed. So a lot of my instrumentation of my software um, uh, and my considerations for monitoring revolve around um, those uh, P98, P99, P50 uh, measurements. So, you know, if I think about my correspondence with PagerDuty, a lot of it is, hey, like, just so you know, your web server's down or your web server's really slow to, uh, to respond to these requests, things like that. Another aspect of that might also be monitoring things like um, database contention. Uh, maybe you've written some really amazing application code and it's just hammering your database. Um, so you have contention on your database or you need to have read replicas or all kinds of other things to help cache your responses so you can have faster response times. But a lot of the things that I'm monitoring in general are going to be around um, web performance and kind of the full stack between someone making a request and getting a response back. Thank you. And if you were to tell us a myth or a common misconception, what what would it be that you'd like to debunk? Um, I think, you know, early on in my career, I assumed that all software um, companies like Google or Facebook or Twitter um, have just, you know, massive um, co-located servers someplace in, uh, you know, Nevada in a desert, you know, location or something, and that, you know, they have an insanely clustered environment that they're working off of that's super redundant and scalable. And I think that the the reality typically is is that they all started with a few servers. And uh, you know, I've read some some things about like early days of Google and their search engine and running it off of like several very over provisioned boxes. But in general, like startups are going to start with very minimal footprints, uh, very low AWS um, or Google App Engine bills by 
I, you know, using as much resources as they can from a single server and then just waiting for the money to roll in to be able to provision more servers. So, you know, when I got into video games, for instance, you know, we'd have a single server, we'd add a bunch of users. At some point, we'd start getting to a point where your database is overloaded, there's too much contention, your app servers are falling over, you're up all night and weekend kind of doing all that uh, provisioning and scalability. But initially you think, oh, like these startups just have instant scalability and they're never going to fail. But the reality is that angel investors only give you a couple hundred thousand dollars. You can only spend so much on your AWS bill um, every month before your burn rate is achieved. You know, everybody's just kind of trying to make it um, to profitability. And so that a lot of times means your infrastructure isn't such that um, you can just scale infinitely. So I don't think that everything is perfect. Everything is pretty wild west until you actually start making revenue from, from your products. So given that, are there ways to make it easier for folks in these environments that you want to share with us? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple really well-documented places that have instrumented kind of massive changes in their infrastructure by switching programming languages and infrastructure underneath them. A good example of this is a very overused example of um, Bleacher Report. Um, They do a lot of sports uh, information uh, services, APIs. Uh, You can go there to get like up-to-date timing on like, oh, the Giants are beating, you know, the Dodgers, my favorite topic. And, you know, in real time, you can see, oh, somebody got a home run. Um, And so their APIs have to be insanely available to just millions and millions of people. You know, initially they uh, were working, I think, in Ruby on Rails, and they ended up having to have hundreds and hundreds of servers to be able to keep up with that demand. And so at some point they decided that their um, their cost for AWS was uh, too much and they weren't making enough money and they weren't scaling quick enough and they were spending a lot of nights and weekends up um, doing all these um, provisioning tasks and trying to make Ruby on Rails work. They decided, hey, if we use the uh, strongly typed language and if you have a virtual machine on a server that was more efficient with memory and CPU usage, we could potentially slash how many servers we have and how much you know, scalability we can achieve. So they switched to a technology called um, Elixir, which is um, based on Erlang. It runs on the Beam, which is the Erlang virtual machine. You know, there's a famous like blog post from Ben Marks, uh, a really amazing software developer, um, in that they went from like you know dozens of Ruby servers down to like two or three, I think, um, Elixir Phoenix um, servers. So there's a lot of things you can do if you choose the right technology to reduce your AWS footprint and your bill and your scalability becomes much uh, a much longer runway for you. So choosing the right technology and the right software and programming languages and scaling technology can really go a long way to um, uh, reducing um, how much pain and anguish you go through while you're scaling your company. So when you have all that pain and anguish, how do you turn that into a learning model for your organization? Typically, the way startups tend to work with their software development is what can we do to recruit the top talent quickly in terms of selecting a technology or a language that's attractive to them. Um, A lot of people choose Ruby or Python because everybody knows those languages from the software development community. If you're graduating with a CS degree from a school, you probably know Python or Ruby. Those languages typically scale up to a point, and then you have to make a decision about going to Kotlin or Java or um, Scala or some other more type-sensitive language, um, or type strongly typed language, rather, and that enables your scalability. So as you're going through that pain and anguish, you're constantly saying, I know there's a better way, but it's harder to hire these people, or maybe it's time to start paying people more that are more experts. So you start off as a generalist software developer that knows a little bit about everything from top to bottom, full stack. 
And then you start realizing, hey, I have to staff all these experts who really know how to scale databases or really know how to scale web services or really understand caching um, you know, at a much more fundamental level. So the lessons you learn through that is that you have to invest in really smart people to do things. You know, I don't necessarily think I'm one of those people, but um, I've been working with a lot of people um, throughout my career that are extremely smart in very specialized areas. And um, I think that's one thing that you have to kind of at some point realize as a developer and as a uh, entrepreneur that investing in the right people uh, will help you kind of ease those pains that you had early on when you had very little money. And now that you're making profit, you have to reinvest that into your talent. That makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you, uh, how do you bring operations into the fold? Operations is one of those things where, again, kind of like what I said before, being a generalist at a small startup, I think everyone's operations and you're a software developer and you're, you know, everything in between, you know, as an engineering manager at a video game company in my past, I was up at night provisioning databases, you know. And so uh, I think that was around the time where, you know, the word DevOps came onto the scene and we started seeing a lot of developers transition into the DevOps um, role. A lot of people thought it was a dirty word for a long time. Uh, and you were kind of expected to do software development and infrastructure and operations and things like that. So I think at some point you specialize, you make enough money to invest in operations and you actually hire some really smart people who maybe they've spent their time at AWS, they've invested their stock options, and now they're ready to go work for a smaller company that's um, growing faster or has more equity available to them. So, you know, that's kind of the relationship you have is when you've done that full stack development and you've been operations yourself and you hire that operations person and they're up all night helping you provision servers at 2 a.m., you really kind of earn this deep, deep respect for the ops teams and what they provide for you. You know, in the early days, it was sysadmins. We were hosting all of our own hardware in our own racks and they would go to the colo and put no, more RAM into the machine for you in the middle of the night, you know. So what we have now is so much easier, obviously. But, you know, those people are, are crucial to the operations of, uh, you know, successful operation of any business. And obviously, they're well worth their weight in uh, salaries. <laughs> well, I think that's great. And it's a good point when you talk about kind of being that generalist where you have a broad understanding of everything and maybe some deep understanding in certain areas. You know, one of the things that we often hear along with monitoring is observability. Can you talk to us a little bit how you tie those in? Yeah, yeah. Observability, I think outside of what I covered before about like the latency of requests and responses, the thing that I often um, have to think about is as people get up in the morning on the East Coast, your traffic starts spiking, right? Uh, overnight, it's very flat and very low, especially if you're just doing business in the continental United States. Um, so um, you think about things like standard deviation and setting thresholds for min and max. So Imagine you're in a video game and you, um, you know, load up your, your game board and you see your castle and it's at level 17 or something like that. But you all come in at like 8 a.m. because everybody wakes up and they want to like click their button to make sure that like their castle's building or something. So, um, the standard deviation monitoring that people like Datadog provide, for instance, is very robust. I think new versions of Grafana are also uh, adding a lot of observability around um, standard deviation as well. But basically, you want to be able to have monitoring in place that moves with the traffic patterns that your website normally has. So it's going to ebb and flow throughout the day, obviously. People are going to be at work, and they're going to be sneaking onto their phone to use your service or something like that. They're going to come home from work, they're going to have some dinner, and they're going to come back and like re-engage. Maybe they're, they've been thinking about that Amazon purchase all day long, they come home, they have uh, dinner, and then they go buy that, you know, 
thing to help you shelter in place or something like that. So um, standard deviation and observability of your services is really a hard thing to solve. Um, a lot of these monitoring companies, a lot of these graphing technologies are starting to factor it in more heavily and make it much more user-friendly for people who are developers who aren't like math quants uh, and who have like, you know, math degrees to figure out like the standard deviation curves and um, how to monitor those things. So it is a large portion of what I have to be concerned with. If every time my traffic dropped to a certain threshold, I got woken up, um, I'd get woken up every night, right? So it's pretty important to have these tools. And I think that where we're at currently and where we're headed in the future in terms of observability monitoring with um, you know various tools that are out there right now to tie into major duty are allowing us to have much more sleep at night than they ever were before. Yeah. And can you dive a little bit deeper into that? How do you tune these so that you're not getting woken up? How do you get rid of the non-actionable alerts? The standard deviation um, concept is essentially that you allow for this this much deviation during this much time period. So a lot of technology for graphing things is focused on this technology called time series data. So if every millisecond I record what my CPU is, what my memory is, um, how much storage space I have on a disk, or how much traffic this one API is getting, I should be able to see a blueprint over time after several days that the time at 2.30 in the morning, this API gets hit five times you know, at the first second, and then maybe 2.35 is getting hit 15 times on average. Maybe you've got a cron job running in the background that's hitting this API because you do a lot of operations at night while people are sleeping. So you start mapping out these traffic patterns, and then you establish monitoring in the future based on those standard deviations from those traffic patterns. So that's kind of the core concept is that you'll see a bunch of spikes. Usually uh, most, most companies run some background jobs at night because there's so low traffic, and you're paying for all those resources from AWS, so why wouldn't you use them? So you'll end up seeing, hey, there's no traffic between 12 and 1, but at 1 we run all these cron jobs and we do a lot of uh, DB queries or something like that or um, you know, uh, try to purge records or do some kind of background task asynchronously. And so that's a normal deviation. Don't worry about that. But then let's say we're doing those cron jobs and then somebody, a hacker from New Zealand, comes in, spams our, um, our APIs with a DDoS attack. We still want to be alerted for that, even though we expect it to be high. It's way abnormally high from what we expected. So that's the main concept behind monitoring a standard deviation is figuring out it's okay to have a huge spike in the middle of the night because we expect it because it's self-induced. Well, thanks. And I think you've answered the mysterious question as to why do I always get paged at 2.30 in the morning? Yes, exactly. You guys never call me when it's uh, when it's a good time. So, Right? Or when it's that meeting that you just really want to get out of? Right, right. Um, <laughs> it's only 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> you know, Eric... With your background with gaming and some of the stresses in those industries, how do you kind of change how you go about things when it's a, a holiday weekend and you know a bunch of people are going to be on, or maybe it's in the middle of a pandemic where everybody's at home? Is yeah. there a different way of thinking? Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. I think it's um, something that we consider constantly. As an engineering manager, I'm responsible for the sanity and health of my entire team. And if all we did was ship code at 5 p.m. on Friday, I would be a miserable person and so would my team. Um, so a lot of it is just um, best practices and saying like, hey, um, there's a really scary migration we're going to do to our database and we shouldn't do it over the weekend. Or you know, sometimes you're kind of bound to say like, hey, we can't do this huge migration while there's a lot of people on our website. We have to do it at 10 p.m. on Tuesday night or something like that. So a lot of it is just um, self-control and uh, basically suffering through enough of those lost weekends and nights that you say we're not going to 
deploy code at, during these periods. A good example of my current company is that we ramp up for Black Friday, right? So there's a lot of purchases made during Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Um, we have code freezes where you can't commit code um, past a certain amount of time. You can't deploy code in this window. We have to guarantee to our, our consumers that they're going to experience a high degree of um, success with their checkouts or things like that. So in video games, same thing exists. Um, you're, you're capturing someone's virtual currency. And if they can't have access to spend their, their rubies or their coins or whatever the shekels are, um, they're going to get really mad at you. So... Uh, when you do risky things, you have to definitely, um, A, have a really good migration strategy so that if things go bad, you can roll it back immediately. And I guess additionally, you kind of want to make sure that the timing is right, that you have enough staff and it's not the middle of the night to help remediate something if it, it breaks, right? So yeah, there's kind of a lot of robustness you have to build into just how you plan your, your software deploys. You know, another thing that happens pretty frequently is at small startups, you're pushing code all day long. You, I, I've worked at startups where I have pushed code 30 times in a day. No big deal unless you mess something up and then suddenly, you know, everyone's uh, on your back and you're getting paged and your graphs are going crazy and your CEO is at your desk asking you what's going on. So in scenarios like that, um, some rigor around what you do when things go bad and planning goes a long way. So I've definitely been in a hot seat where I've pushed bad code. I think we all do it as software engineers. You learn from it. And if you don't, you're not a good software engineer. So you typically want to have a plan to either roll back your code changes or fix it forward, which is a really bad uh, thing to do if, unless you have to do something like that. So imagine you deploy some really bad code and it was because you changed an if-then statement to have a greater than versus a less than symbol, right? So what do you do? Do you roll back your to deploy or do you change the greater than or less than symbol and deploy that as a fix forward, right? So you have to make those calls all the time. If your company has a policy to say, we are always going to roll back, we're never going to fix forward, that is also really helpful. Um, sometimes when you do a schema migration with a database, you can't roll back. So you have to try to fix forward. So part of making a really dangerous schema migration is understanding how can I make my software robust enough that I can fix it forward or revert some software that won't utilize that new column or won't you know hit something that's not indexed anymore in your database. So, so a lot of planning that goes into it, a lot of thinking um, in part of the process of not catching yourself in a bad situation. A lot of times it's just documenting what you're about to do, sharing it with all your coworkers and saying, am I crazy? Is this stupid? Should I not do this? Is there a more sane way to do this? And then getting buy-in so that at least when you mess up, everyone has uh, signed off on how you messed up basically. So as an engineering manager, how do you kind of drive this culture of accountability, but not necessarily fear of failure forward to your team? We all need to learn from mistakes that we make. And I think it's natural. Everyone makes mistakes. There's not, um, there's not some bar where I say, I'll hire you as a software engineer, but you can't mess up ever. We have to learn from every mistake we make. And ideally, if I'm doing my job as an engineering manager, I catch things before they become mistakes, right? Or I ask questions to try to get people to think about things um, where I've made a mistake before and I'm trying to prevent them to make, uh, from making a mistake. The natural ebb and flow of things works in a way that oftentimes I'm too busy to look at every line of code that goes out, right? It's not sustainable for me as a manager to like be a, a shepherd of all the code that gets deployed to our servers. So... You have tech leads, you have other people that you empower to have that kind of leadership and mentorship. 
And that's how you kind of stay sane and um, learn from your problems. A lot of times it's a really good exercise after something that uh, goes wrong. You um, do like a postmortem. So you document what what went wrong. You know, maybe the servers were down for five minutes. Um, Maybe this many users hit the endpoint and got a 500 or a 400 uh, error and they did or didn't come back, you can quantify the downtime or the regression by how much money you may have lost. Or, you know, I I couldn't go into my game. I couldn't spend my virtual currency. I couldn't advance my castle to level 18. Um, That's, you know, a good good way to, to kind of quantify what the effect was. And it's not to rub it in your face as a software developer, like, hey, we lost, you know, $2,000 because it was down for five minutes. It's, it's a way to kind of say like, hey, there are consequences to this action and we need you to be a software developer and push really hard to get new features out and new things for people to do on your website or whatever you're doing. But we have to mitigate risk as best as possible. And there's only one way to really learn and it's by messing up. So it's kind of my philosophy there. Absolutely. And the last thing you want is people to be afraid of that or they won't innovate. Yeah. If you're not trying hard enough, there's a joke kind of um, between myself and some of my peers. And it's like, if you haven't had a postmortem, you're not trying hard enough, but no one wants one, obviously. And I know a lot of developers who have avoided it for a very long time. Uh, Inevitably, something minor can happen and then you can reclassify it as a postmortem worthy um, problem. But if there is no user effect, um, it's hard to quantify uh, documenting it too thoroughly. So. Yeah, I recently had somebody tell me that they never have any incidents because they <laughs> never go down. They're not and trying it, hard enough, probably. That, yeah. Right? Let's. Uh, we have a couple of questions that we ask every guest on our show. And uh, the first one is, what's the one thing you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? And I think we touched on this a little bit earlier. Yeah. The thing that springs to mind would probably be that good software design and forethought go extremely far in terms of your your sanity in the long run. So any person out of a, a coding bootcamp can make a new JavaScript form to fill out and submit data in a horrible way to your web server. And as long as you're collecting email addresses for some kind of marketing campaign, you know, you're great. But when you don't do SQL injection checks against that, or you don't do some kind of, you know, form validation on the client side or on the server side, and you just start throwing everything into your database, um, that can go really bad. So thinking through what you're supposed to do in terms of uh, designing your architecture, communicating with your peers about how you're going to do that, thinking about scalability up front. It's something that no one on the product side or the uh, entrepreneur side is going to tell you to do. But as a developer, having the discipline to do that, I think, goes a long way in terms of your sanity and kind of understanding the trade-offs you're making. Uh, being a developer is all about making trade-offs, and it's about negotiating, right? So uh, there's a pyramid of trade-offs. So you've got speed, quality, or stability. You can have two, but not three. So you always have to think to yourself, what's the opportunity cost of moving slow here? Is the opportunity cost that we'll lose this business? okay, we have to make it speed and quality or speed and stability. So you're going to trade off one of those three at every single point, but make sure that you're making the right decision about which one you're trading off, I guess. And and be friendly to your future self and uh, do the right choice. I like it. Okay. Well, is there anything about running software in production that you're glad I did not ask you about? Hmm. 
I think that there's a lot of political um, reasons why companies choose um, different technologies. Um, a lot of those things are costs, you know, for a small startup uh, who's got angel investing, you know, maybe you don't have enough money to pay PagerDuty or maybe you don't have enough money to pay Datadog or Snowflake or all these other technologies that help you do all this monitoring. And, you know, thinking back to some of the bootstraps uh, startups that I've worked for that have failed, um, you know, you have to make decisions as a business as well. And I think um, I've been involved in, you know, some pretty scrappy endeavors in the past. And the right decision is always to move fast and break things when you've got a very small amount of money and a big idea that you're trying to do. And for me, I've made some poor decisions about the startups that I've joined um, that have not panned out into this point. Um, but I've also made some really amazing connections with the software developers in San Francisco and beyond and met some uh, amazing um, mentors and technologists throughout my my 15 years in San Francisco. And that isn't worth nothing, even though I haven't been paid out by some kind of massive public offering from a company that I started. But um yeah, I think that's one thing that uh, if you dug into my bad decision making, I think that could have been a little bit embarrassing. But uh, overall, I think you know it's still a positive, and that I've met a lot of people and experienced a lot of amazing things. Thank you. And you know, Eric, for my growing reading list, uh, what's one book you would recommend to our listeners that it's a must read? Mm-hmm. So this is an old book that a lot of software developers have read already, but it's it's called uh, Extreme Programming. So this is basically the methodology of agile uh, in a in a way as it applies to software development, and it basically it's like a boot camp uh, for how to cope with um, changing specs constantly. So if you're developing something and you have a sprint schedule that's every two weeks, you do a, a workload, right? Inevitably, um, your CEO is going to come to you and say. Uh, I just had this meeting over lunch and we need to drop everything you're doing and work on this other thing. And normally people don't context change very easily. But the fact of the matter is that business opportunity is something that you have to strike while the iron's hot. And it's okay to drop everything and move on, especially if you've done a lot of diligence with what you're doing. You can come back to it later. So extreme programming is a good one. I think it's by Kent Beck. I can't remember for sure, but it came out maybe 20 years ago, I think. And it's a good survival guide for how to cope with constant change as a software developer. Thank you. And for everyone listening, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And thank you, Eric, for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, Really appreciate that. For anybody that has any questions on SLAs or SLOs, you can visit the podcast episode with Yuri Grinstein from Google on setting those. Um, And again, Eric, thank you. So this is Julie Gunderson wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com. And you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>